Well, if you'll take your Bibles, we'll be in Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, and we'll read verse 23, and we're going through a series on the existence of God, and what I hope that we have done at the very least over these past six weeks is create some skeptics, create some skeptics on atheism. I hope that if you're a skeptic here this morning that you have been rattled, I hope that you've been able to engage in these things, and it very well may be the case that what we find on week seven when we talk about today, which God? If there is such a thing as a God, can God be known? And, and if so, which one? Because you don't have to have a degree to know that there are many options out there on God, on religions. And in Acts chapter 13, excuse me, 17, the Apostle Paul is addressing a group of philosophers at the Areopagus there on Mars Hill in Athens. This was the intelligentsia of the intelligentsia of the philosophical world in the first century. And the Apostle Paul makes a curious statement in verse 23 when he is explaining Christianity to these skeptics. And he says in verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, quote, to the unknown God, unquote. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim this to you. The Apostle Paul is saying, you guys have had everything covered. You have belief systems and idols and monuments to every God in the known first century world. But they were so pluralistic that they even put an engraving to the unknown God and had an altar there. And the Apostle Paul says, I'm here to explain to you the one true God, the God that many people do not know. And in this series, we've gone through evidence from logic. We've gone through scientific evidence. We've gone through intelligent design. We've even looked at Darwinism. And we see at this point, okay, if there is a God, then which one do I choose? And here's the main idea that we'll go for this morning, is that death, death is the plumb line. And resurrection is the wind, simply meaning that no matter if it's a philosopher, scientist, religious leader, there's a great statistic out there, and it's that 10 out of 10 people die. Did y'all know that? 10 out of 10 people die, meaning that every single religious leader on the face of the planet, they've taught different things at different times, but one thing that is the plumb line, one thing that ties it all together is death. It's been said that death and taxes are inevitable. You can't escape them. That's not true. You can, you can cheat on taxes. You can, you can get out of taxes. Many people have done that, but no one escapes death. So if you can have a system of belief or a leader, we could just say a religious leader, who could somehow demonstrate that they have not only embraced death, but they have conquered death, then you don't get a religion, then you get a living, vibrant faith, something that should rock us to the core of our being. And so here's the, the case in America today. We've got all sorts of different religions, and many people tell us today that all religions teach the same thing. And here's three basic divisions. Number one would be atheism, which says that there is no God at all. Then there's pantheism, which says that God is all and all is God. 
And then three, there would be theism, which says simply God made all that exist and God exists separate from his creation, meaning that God is not a rock, God is not a molecule. But here's where we are with doubting atheism. Many times there's a danger that whenever you begin to doubt your atheism, to doubt your skepticism, there can be the danger of becoming an intellectual couch potato that instead of getting up off the couch and saying, okay, if there are holes in the freight liner in the ship of atheism, then eternity is so long and death is so real that I owe it to myself to actually start investigating the existence of God and or which God. But there can be the danger, if you are a skeptic here this morning, or for those who listen online or the radio, that if you begin to doubt your skepticism, you simply stay there on the couch. And what I'm hoping we can do here this morning is to motivate you to get off the couch and investigate what actually is. So here's the first option. People say now, there could be God, so what would God be like if there is such a being? There's been an option proposed to say that God is an impersonal force. He's just a force, kind of like Star Wars. And all of the Star Wars fanatics will come out of the woodworks by December. There may be a few here. And in my weaker moments, I'd love to see a cage match between the top 10 finalists of Star Wars and Star Trek. Just put them in the cage and see what happens. But the Lord corrects me in those weak moments. So here's, here's the question, though, for those, of you, those who say, well, God is just a force. A force is an impersonal reality. It's just something that's there, kind of like gravity, kind of like the laws of electromagnetism. And we have an earth that is filled with personal beings. So how do you get personal beings from an impersonal force? And I love this one. And by the way, there are more notes that are actually online that you can pull up. Everything's footnoted if you want to study that on your own. But this comes up all the time. Say, well, Jeff, aren't all religions basically the same? They're basically the same to those who have not studied religions. All right? We're just putting it out there. When you really begin to peel back the layers, you see that they're very, very different. Here's what C.S. Lewis says in his sermon, God um, in the Dock. He says, if you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would have first rent his clothes and then cut your head off. And this is the illustration that's usually given to convince us that all religions are basically the same. We're told, well, religion and truth is like if there was an elephant in a room. And then you had all of these different men who were blind, and they were touching different parts of the element, elephant. You would have the man who would grab the elephant's trunk to say, well, it's kind of like a tree branch that grows. You would have the man touching the elephant's side to say, well, it's like a brick wall, but it's warm. You would have someone touching the elephant's tail saying, well, it's kind of like leaves. It's kind of like a spindly bit of material. And they tell us, we are told, that that's what religion is like. It's the same thing. We're just grabbing a hold of different parts of reality. But it's time to put on the thinking caps and actually do thinking that a lot of times you don't even hear in college classes when foolishness like this is brought out. What's the fallacy here? Fallacy is very simply saying that none of us can fully know truth. 
But who knows the truth in the illustration? The presenter of the illustration. The presenter of the illustration knows that it is an elephant, right? And that there are a certain amount of people that are touching the elephant. Here's what Tim Keller says about this fallacy. He says, how could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality that you have just claimed that none of the religions have? This is an invalid argument. It defeats itself on its own premise. So here's a question. Why are there so many religions in the world? You ever thought about that? I mean, there are so many different systems of belief. If you want to go Google this, Google original monotheism. It is a top-rate academic argument saying that what we see in world religions is there are still there are still shadows, there are still vestiges of an original monotheism which is very easily explained if the Bible is true. Because if the Bible is true, then God created Adam and Eve in the beginning. They messed up. People went their own way. And man tried to create religion in order to deal with his guilt. But if the Bible is true, then most religions in the world would at least have the faint memory of an ultimate sovereign God. And when you peel back the layers on many religions, even traditional religions such as in Africa, they don't even have a system of belief for that ultimate God, but they simply say there is a God that is above our gods. There is a God that is superior to the deities that we worship in the spirit and in the water and the jungle, but we have no way to know how to get to the one true God. So world religions are basically a distortion of the original monotheism that God gave humanity. So here's a quite a, another question. Is there actually truth in other religions? Well, in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the Bible tells us that God has written his law on our hearts. That means that every single person that has been born knows intuitively that it is wrong to steal, cheat, lie, murder, and rape. You don't need an argument to convince you that that's a moral evil. So to a certain extent, there are some religions that actually teach respect and selflessness and peace and justice. There are many that do not. One would be Islam. But here's the catch. What general revelation, which is simply what we see in nature, that there is a God, to look within and say there are certain things that are wrong and there are certain things that are right. What general revelation cannot give us is knowledge of who God actually is. General revelation cannot give us prophecy. General revelation cannot give us scripture. And general revelation cannot give us the real truths about the nature of God. That's why we need special revelation, aka the Bible, to where God says, you know what? You guys have looked out. You've studied scientifically. You've seen the design in nature. And most of you that are willing to follow the evidence have concluded that there is a God but you don't know what he's like. Let me tell you what I'm like. And God sent his son Jesus to show us what God is like. And the danger for many people today is they associate religions, world religions, with the ability to gain truth about who God is. That is a poison, my friends. The Bible does not teach that there are many ways to God. The Bible teaches that there is one way to God. And that is very troubling to our society. In many cases, society doesn't mind so much if you talk about God, just generic, this 
Nobody defines it. But when you start talking about Jesus Christ, you had better be prepared. Because the Bible tells us in the beginning that sin entered into the world and our creation, our planet is racked with the ravages of sin. Then God sent Moses and gave the law, gave the Ten Commandments. And by the time of Moses, there were world religions that had degenerated and and produced such systems like Molech that said that you can sacrifice your own children. Sacrifice your own children so that the storm gods will give you more rain to produce more crops. And by the way, whether it's infanticide or whether it's abortion, it's always about money. Think for the glory of God. Think for these children. Do not take the arguments that are presented to you that tell you that it's for another reason. The bottom line is the greenback God of choice. So here's an option. Could it be that the pagan gods could explain the existence of the universe? Well, I don't think so because pagan gods, when you study (laughs) pagan mythology, they're more jacked up than their worshipers. That's the reason why Socrates and Plato had such a hard time because they said, we know there's got to be someone, something that has created all this, but the Greek gods are more messed up than we are. I mean, it's like Jerry Springer meets drugs. It's, it is wild. It's insane to see all of the corruption. So the, the concept of pagan gods, it fails morally and it also fails logically in the sense of if you have something that can explain the existence of the universe, there's no logical reason to multiply that. Meaning, if God exists, there's no logical reason to conclude that there needs to be more than one God. Because if something is God, then that's enough to actually explain the existence of the universe. Number two, Hinduism. Uh, very, it's the main religion in India. Hinduism believes that uh, we are part of, and the goal of life is to be incorporated and absorbed into this ultimate force, Brahman and Atman. And this is a picture of samsara, which a lot of Westerners, Americans, we know this is reincarnation. It's the wheel of suffering. So if you're a Hindu, the reason why you are what you are and you have what you have is because you did something good or bad in past lives that have led to this point. Now here's the problem. In Hinduism, you've got a logical problem of infinite regress. If life can be explained by the circle or the wheel of suffering, then how did the wheel begin with? When you say there's no actual beginnings. In Hinduism, they believe in a cyclical universe, that there was no actual point of beginning. It also fails morally because uh, this is what actually many Americans think of karma. Sometimes people at the office place will do something, they'll be a jerk, and then something will happen to them. People say, well, it goes around, comes around, right? Do a little head bob. (laughs) That's what most Westerners think of karma. What goes around, comes around. But what Hinduism actually teaches about, kar- about karma is that it is something that you cannot escape. It actually increases suffering because it's kind of like this. Let's say someone were to have a wreck. You're driving along. You see the person who has had the wreck. What do most of us do? If you can help, you, you stop. But here's the reason why you don't do that in a Hindu system. Because the reason why the person's in the ditch bleeding out is because they got what they deserve from a previous life. And the worst thing you can do for them is not let them suffer out their bad karma. We tracking? And not only that, a bigger no-no would be you intervening in their karma. 
And an even bigger no-no would be if they were of a different caste, you have just broken caste, which is the ultimate sin in Hinduism. That's the reason why most of the aid organizations in India are from the West, because we believe that the gospel, or at least Christians believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ motivates us to alleviate suffering, whereas in the Hindu mindset, we need to allow them to suffer it out so that they'll improve. Even Buddha, as we'll see in just a moment, was an improvement on Hinduism. Buddhism teaches that the goal of life is nirvana, which is uh, the blowing out, and Kurt Cobain, the band Nirvana, I don't know if they fully understood uh, what this was, but the problem with Buddhism, and there's actually a link to a master's thesis that was written on this problem, believes that creation and reality and the universe can be explained as a cycle, but again, If science shows us that the universe has not always been here, then how do you explain the beginning of even if it is a cycle, which it's not? It fails logically because it says that the universe uh, is not contingent. Number two, Buddhism fails morally because there is no foundation for morality itself. What Buddhism does, and I know in America, Buddhism appeals to especially many younger people who have seen the emptiness of materialism. Buddhism promotes selfishness because the goal in Christianity is others. The the goal in Buddhism is you and I reaching our own personal enlightenment. So here's a question if you're a thinker and you're actually going to investigate it. What proof is there that Gautama Buddha actually achieved enlightenment? Remember, enlightenment is a state of mind. It's not something that you can empirically verify, unlike Jesus' empty tomb. Was there any evidence? There is not. Is there proof that Jesus rose from the dead? We'll look at this in a few minutes. Absolutely. So which is easier to claim? I, Buddha, have reached a level of nirvana, which is a mental state, or I'm going to physically die, physically be raised from the dead, physically be seen by other people. It's very easy for any of us to claim that we've achieved a state of mind, but it's an entirely other thing, another thing altogether to claim that I'm going to die and I'm going to come back from the dead. So here's the question for Buddhism, that they have no answers when you talk about origin. Where did suffering actually originate? Buddhists tell us that suffering originates with our desires, but where did it all start? They say it's a cycle. It breaks down Logically, we can ask, did one act set the motion of the wheels of suffering? Did one act set it all off? And if so, who is to blame? And Buddhism does not have an answer. You're often told in Buddhism, you need to worry about yourself. This is layman's terms, right? You need to worry about yourself, and then you need to ask those questions. And I think that Confucius says, stop dodging the question. So if humanity is the cause of suffering, right, if Buddhism is true, then we are the cause of suffering because of our desires, then where does deliverance come from? In Buddhism, it says it comes from us. But if we're all in a pit, you need someone outside the pit to be able to deliver you. And we know him as Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, we ask the question also to Buddhists, how can teachings and doctrines that have no connection to a living person actually provide deliverance from suffering. Buddhism says you need to think differently. Christianity says you have a personal savior who delivers you from the pit of suffering. It is totally different. 
In Buddhism, it says look within. Christianity, you look within, you get scared really quick. And then that's what causes us to look out, outward for Jesus Christ. So how does one reach enlightenment in Buddhism? By personal meditation. It turns a person inward to where the gospel turns a person outward to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. And here we come to Islam. And let me just say a few words given what happened in Paris and what happened in Kenya this past week. If you go to our website, RockyMountBaptistChurch.com, we have hours, literally hours of teaching on Islam. And something I would say at this point, um, what usually comes up in the discussion about terrorism, people say, well, there are many Muslims who are kind, law-abiding people, and that's very, very true. But they are law-abiding, kind, loving people, not because of Islam, but in spite of Islam. The reason why you meet many people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but they are A1 class jerks. They may claim to believe in Jesus. They may claim to believe the Bible, but they don't follow the Bible. You see the difference? A person is Christ-like and loving in Christianity because of Christ. If a person has basic natural law kindness in Islam, it's because they are not following the teachings of Muhammad. And Muhammad... And Islam fails radically because it fails morally. Do you realize that in Islam, God only loves those who love him first? That is the complete reversal of the gospel. Not only that, this is amazing, that in Islam, they claim that Jesus was not actually even crucified. That it was someone else because God would never allow a prophet to be crucified, even though every other Jewish, Christian, Greek, and Roman source of the first century, every single one of them that referenced Jesus and the cross, they say Jesus of Nazareth was killed. But Muhammad decided to recreate history and say that Jesus was not. Here's a few verses from the Quran that shows how God's love is inferior, unfitting for God says that God loves not the unbelievers. God loves not the impious and sinners. God loves not evildoers. God loves not the proud. God loves not transgressors. God loves not the prodigal. God loves not the treacherous. God is an enemy to unbelievers. And those are just half of what's actually on the website, and there's even more that we didn't have time to include. Here's what Jesus says about that kind of love in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, that's what Islam teaches. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For, check this out, for if... You love those who love you. What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You know what Jesus is saying? That if God's love is conditional upon being loved first, that God's love is no better, no better than tax cheats and people who don't give a rip. Yet that's exactly the same kind of love that Islam teaches. Islam fails historically. It fails logically. It fails based on the morality of love itself. That true love is not dependent upon what is loved, but on the character of the one 
who loves. So here's another option, Jesus of Nazareth. I know we have some people say here, Jeff, when are you going to get to Jesus? Did Jesus live? This is a common question for those uh, on the internet who read people's blogs uh, written by 45-year-olds still living in their grandmother's basement uh, wearing Smurf. Um, I should stop there. In all seriousness, if you guys want to look this up too, uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, he is an agnostic professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and written a lot of different books, is not a follower of Jesus Christ, but he actually took one of these leading internet so-called atheists, took him to the barn and wore him out saying, if you say that there's no evidence that Jesus lived, you're a moron. I mean, go, go look it up. Internet infidel guy versus Bart Ehrman. It's an internet infidel podcast and they're interviewing Bart Ehrman trying to get him, who's actually a serious scholar, on their side. And he's like, bro, you're an idiot. He's like, do not say that because it causes our side to lose what little credibility we have. But here are some sources, if you want to look this up, do some research later, that actually claim that Jesus lived. Now notice, none up here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've got Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman ruler. You have Tacitus, the Roman historian. You have Suetonius, Roman historian. Josephus, the famous Jewish historian. Um, Celsus was a Platonist philosopher, and Lucian was also a great writer and playwright. All of these writers recorded that Jesus actually lived. Well, what did Jesus teach? What do we find from history? We find that Jesus teaches and taught. Listen, this is cool. If you ever have to take a logic, I know we're nerding out this morning, but if you ever have to take a logic course in any university, flip through to the index, and you will find in most every logic textbook, Jesus. Examples that are used for logically airtight, outs that's got to hurt, I'm going to go crawl under a hole, smack down arguments. Like Jesus' arguments are absolutely brilliant, even if you don't believe that he was the son of God. He taught that. And Jesus also taught this revolutionary standard of compassion. You see, Buddha changed the ethics in that area of the world when he found a man who was suffering on his deathbed, and Buddha actually cleaned his wounds. He said, you know what? I'm going to intervene in this so-called karma. But what Jesus did when he found people that were not only on their deathbed, but they were dead, guess what he did? He raised them from the dead. I mean, Jesus cast out demons. Jesus did all of these amazing things to show that he had compassion for those who had no voice in society. And not only that, man, you talk about Jesus is a great moral teacher. Have you ever actually read what Jesus says? Be perfect in the Matthew chapter 5. As my Father in heaven is perfect. That is called an impossibly high standard of morality for everybody. Like in one sense, you can say, man, that's awesome. Like Jesus tells us we should be like God. But on the other hand, it should cause us to quake in our boots because we can't do it. But Jesus taught an impossibly high standard of morality. And Jesus claimed to have power over death. Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus did miracles that were so incredible that when you read these non-Christian sources, they record the miracles, but you know what their conclusion is? They don't deny the miracles. They say, well, Jesus was working. He was, a, he was a, some type of a, a magician. And to that, you've got to be able to laugh. Like, they couldn't deny it because everybody knew. They're not writing their books 400 years after the past. They would say things like, well, Jesus was in league with 
demons and Satan. That's the reason why he was able to do what he did. And Jesus claimed to have power over death. And this is something very ironic about Jesus. When he was pushed to the human limits of suffering, from being beaten from soldiers' fists, to having the crown of thorns smashed on his brow, to having all of his friends leave him and stab him in the back, Jesus, upon pain of death, did not renounce his claims to be the son of God. And not only that, he called the shots. He said stuff like, this temple will be torn down and three days later, God will raise it up again. You know the reason why they killed him, the Jews? Because they knew he was claiming to be the son of God. And it was executed by the Jews and the Romans for claiming exactly that. And here are some minimal facts that when you look at history, this is from non-Christian sources. Again, we're not even going to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all agree that Jesus was crucified, that he was buried, and I love this part, that they found the tomb was empty. They also found that there are numerous people claiming to have eyewitness evidence, eyewitness accounts, personal flesh and blood conversation with the risen Jesus. And not only that, but the disciples so believed that Jesus was born, that he was raised again, that it changed them so that they didn't renounce their beliefs about the risen Jesus, even on pain of death. So at this point, let's take a little time out and say as rational, logical people, even though I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, as rational people, what is the best explanation for the evidence? Well, some people say, well, what happened, Jeff, is Jesus swooned on the cross. He just passed out and woke up later. The Romans were expert executioners, and if the prisoner lived, then they would get that same sentence. If you want to believe that, here's your sign. Number two, the wrong tomb. They say, well, they just went to the ladies, went to the wrong tomb. Well, if they were spreading the message about the risen Jesus, all the Jews and the Romans had to do was say, come here. Let's look in my GPS. I'll take you to the right tomb. And the story of the risen Jesus would have died within the first generation. Some will say, well, it could have been a hallucination. But if you study hallucinations, people don't all see the same hallucinations. That's not the nature of the beast. Some say, well, the disciples stole the body. Well, if you really want to believe that a group of washed-up fishermen, tax cheats, and other extremists were able to overpower a Roman battalion who was there to guard what could have turned into a full-scale revolution, you can believe that as well, but you can also believe uh, all sorts of other foolish things. And then some people say, well, no, the, Jeff, the whole thing was just a fraud. The disciples made up the story. Well, why would you die for a belief that you know to be a lie? I mean, nobody does that. We lie to get stuff or to get out of stuff. Come on. The reason why we lie is to avoid pain and suffering, not to bring it upon ourselves. So here's the question. What will you do with Jesus? The Bible says that Jesus is a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus was the fulfillment of the ancient Old Testament Jewish prophecies. Jesus came to live and to die for us. And the beautiful part of the gospel is that when Jesus rose from the dead, it showed that he didn't avoid death, but he embraced every bit of it. But then he rose from the dead. You see, death is the plumb line for Buddha and Muhammad and every single person who has ever lived, but resurrection is the win. It's the only thing that can get you out of the pit of death, and it is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Let's look at this clip here. 
of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. Crank He's the king up. of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Hey. And that is a drop in the bucket. Jesus Christ is so amazing. And I, I pray at Rocky Mount Baptist Church, as we continue to grow, that some of you will realize that he can save you. We've got people who come each week and folks say, well, you know, the church is, is filling up, Jeff. And we've got and people that we're inviting to come and it's so great. But listen, what we pray for is that you get saved. Then stop waiting. Stop waiting. You can stay on the couch. 
until the day that you die. But Jesus is here today. And I'm telling you, based on the authority of the Bible, not on a Baptist document, not on what I think, but Jesus loves you and he can save you. You see, death is the plumb line and everybody who's ever lived can't get above it. But Jesus Christ walked that road, he conquered it, and he's here today and he's able to save you. He's able to save you.